What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. The magic of documentaries is that you don't know what's going to happen. So you go with it. Just a free tip there from one of the world's best documentary filmmakers, Barbara Koppel. This week on the show, Adam's conversation with the two-time Oscar winner, whose new film, Desert One, is out this weekend. And we kick off our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon with Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker and three shorts from 40s experimental filmmaker Maya Darren. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I love filling in cinematic blind spots, Josh, and I know you do as well. So we're both really eager and excited to kick off this new marathon, Overlooked Auteurs, a bit later in the show. Yeah, and it's always a good sign when we start one of these, just start digging in. And my first reaction is, what an idiot I am for not having watched these movies sooner, which is definitely what I had with those Darren shorts. Yeah, we'll be taking a look at work from seven female filmmakers from the 40s through the early 90s over the course of this marathon. We are starting with Ida Lupino and Maya Darren. Again, that's later in the show. But first, Adam's conversation with Barbara Koppel. Koppel's career got off to a notable start with Harlan County, USA. That was her verite account of a 1973 minor strike in rural Kentucky. I know, Adam, one of your favorite docs of all time. Yeah, I may have asked her at least one question about Harlan County. Nice. That went on to win the 1977 documentary feature Oscar. Her follow-up didn't come until 1990, American Dream, about a worker strike at a Hormel plant in Minnesota. That one also won the Oscar. Since that second win, Koppel has made over 20 documentaries on all kinds of subjects. It includes profiles of the band formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. That one was called Shut Up and Sing. She did a doc on Woody Allen, Wild Man Blues, and the one that I really love on the late soul singer Sharon Jones. That's called Miss Sharon Jones. Koppel's new film, Desert One, tells the story of a 1980 mission to rescue 52 American hostages being held in Iran. And no, in case you're wondering, this isn't the plot of Ben Affleck's Best Picture winner, Argo, member Our great conversation about Argo, Adam. Oh, we'll never forget. (laughs) Fun times. That was about a different set of people trapped in Iran in the early days of that country's revolution. The mission that Koppel examines in Desert One, in interviews with the men who led it and with Iranians who witnessed it, is notable because it failed. It resulted in the deaths of eight U.S. servicemen and an Iranian, and it played a major role in President Jimmy Carter's failure to win re-election later that year. Desert One opens in a limited theatrical release this weekend and on VOD on September 4. Here's Adam's conversation. I know I'm not alone in this. I'm on record as naming Harlan County, USA, one of the best documentaries ever made. I taught it and American Dream once in a class on Cinema Verite. So, Barbara Koppel, it's genuinely a thrill to have you on Film Spotting. Thanks for coming on. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Thank you very much. Of course. I was four when the events of Desert One played out, so I guess I'll use that as my excuse. But I have to confess, I really had no idea what story was going to unfold when I started watching. And the story I did get surprised me. So was that partly what drew you to this story, that it's a mission that a lot of Americans may not be aware of or have forgotten about or chosen to forget about? Yes, exactly. 
the History Channel was going to do 100 feature films based on history that people really didn't know that much about. And so Desert One was one of them. They ended up only doing four or five. And so we were so lucky that we got to do this. And I just loved it because I just felt that Desert One really is a story that needed to be told. You know, for me, a story of heroism, a reminder of the horrors of war. And it also, it's a reminiscence today because it looks at the roots of the conflict between the U.S. and the Iranian government. Mm -hmm. And plus, I just really wanted to do it because the guys are so incredible. They're they're guys who never really got their due. Mm -hmm. Um, And they went because they wanted to rescue 52 hostages who had been, you know, taken by the Iranian students. So not knowing the story... I'll also confess, I assumed it was going to be a story of American triumph. And in some ways it is. You mentioned it is a tale of heroism. It's definitely a tale of great courage, but it is a failed mission. And the failed missions aren't the ones history typically remembers or wants to revisit. It sounds like that was also an angle that appealed to you. Yeah. um, Well, people have this motto. They had the guts to try. And um, from this, came a lot of really incredible things like this organization called the Special Operations Warriors Foundation. And also it was really the first time that special forces were ever put together, you know, Marines Mm -hmm. and Navy and everybody. And now special forces are together, you know, on different missions that they go in. So it was the start of that. Thinking about Desert One in relation to some of the other documentaries you've made, the two I mentioned, for example, you give a voice there to people who are often voiceless and overlooked. I'm thinking, of course, of the of the miners and the meat packers. And it's not the soldiers whose missions are unsuccessful, as we touched on, whose stories are typically told, but that's what you've done. And so I'm curious if that was a conscious choice on your part, or are you just naturally drawn to telling those kinds of stories and giving voice to those people? Yeah, that's what I love doing more than anything is really getting to know people that you ordinarily wouldn't know or you have stereotypical feelings about and let them tell their story and let them dig deep. I've done two other films about the military. One was a film with a collective of people called Winter Soldier, which was about Vietnam veterans telling stories about what happened in Vietnam. And then another one in 2015 called Shelter, which was about homeless veterans and a really wonderful friend of mine, Dave Morris, who did a lot of the singing in Harlan County, USA, was a homeless vet. And he was sort of the center of the film as we went to different places where there were homeless vets and he sang and he told stories and it was quite beautiful. Hmm. So that's one way that Desert One feels exactly like a Barbara Koppel film. And while I can't speak with authority on all of your work, when I think about you, I think about a direct cinema approach, chronicling life unfolding. And we're we're following an event or experience where the result is unknown. But of course, here you you know the result, if you will, of this story going in and you're you're kind of retelling and recreating. Do you find that form of documentary filmmaking 
as rewarding as Cinema Verite, more challenging, less challenging, or is it just different? Well, I mean, I knew the results, but I didn't know the people's stories. And we tried to make the film like a thriller, you know, where you sit on the edge of your seat, even if you knew what happened, really wanting to know what happened or wanting to know how it happened. I was looking back at some notes uh, that I had on Harlan County, USA, and even that film plays out a bit like a thriller. And this one certainly does. Is that is that something you're aware of coming in, that that type of approach, that, that a viewer could have that type of suspenseful experience with these stories? Or is it something that you uh, put together, I suppose, in, in the editing? Well, the magic of documentaries is that you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So you go with it and you see what happens. You never predicted at the beginning and research that you do before you go, you just throw it all out because you allow the people to bloom and you want them to be the ones to really tell you what's happening. Mm -hmm. So I think you said it, that the act of discovery here in this type of documentary filmmaking, uh, as opposed to cinema verite, where it's what the camera is capturing. And then I imagine again, what you're seeing in editing here, it's the research, and it's probably most importantly those interviews that you mentioned. And there are some really profound moments with these men. And I think there's even this this subtextual, maybe it's even just textual conversation taking place about what what a good leader is, and not only that, what a good man is, how one should act. Is that something you, you were aware of and, and felt was aligned through some of these dialogues? I think I found that out through the guys that this was really a selfless mission of rescue. Um, and they just intended to save dozens of people that were being held against their will. But I mean, the hard part and the challenging part of this film was that the mission was a total secret and it was classified and nobody could talk about it. And there were no photographs of it and there was no footage of it. It was a secret mission. And so we had to figure out a way to be able to make it come alive. And we did that through the stories of the men and through animation. And our animator is from Iran. He now lives in Brooklyn. But we had a great you know, team of people that we worked with, Eric Foreman, Dave Cassidy, uh, Luann Jones. And we tried to make sure that every single helicopter was as it should be, and every C-130 plane was as it should be, and how would this work, how would the fire work, or how would crashes work, and so that was the heart of the film. So there was this real attention to veracity, and that's something people always think about when they think about documentary films, rightly or wrongly, uh, as as something that is capturing or or telling the the truth, and I, I imagine that it's always tricky for a filmmaker such as yourself to decide where and how to insert your own voice. I mean, the truth depends on who is talking in the moment and their version of it in the editing sometimes can juxtapose those truths. Um, and one of the things I found interesting here is you, you could have made a film that just told the story from the perspective of the men who were on the ground um, and went through this ordeal and the leaders and their decision making. But you also give us the Iranian perspective on it. I'm, I'm just curious how how that came about. Yeah, that was very important because we really wanted to know what the Iranian point of view was. And we had an Iranian 
crew of two women. And one day they found this absolutely wonderful guy. They were in a small village and um, they were asking around, does, does anybody, you know, know about this mission that happened not too far from here? And they were pointed to this man and the man was 11 years old when this happened and he and his family were in a bus and they went every year on a trip in this bus and they just happened to be going through the place in Tabas where, you know, the planes had landed and the military was all there and they were stopped and they were held hostage. You really got the point of view of what happened. It was almost as if he was telling it with his 11 year old mind. And the most beautiful thing I felt about that interview, and it's one of my favorites, is that he didn't, he wanted to make it and he couldn't wait to go back to school so he could tell all his friends what happened, which is so much like everybody Mm -hmm. would want to do if you were a kid. Yeah. How one ultimately perceives Jimmy Carter and his handling of the situation is probably an aspect of the film that any viewer is going to wrestle with when they when they walk out. And it's, of course, loaded with complexities and ambiguities that I think your film very adeptly touches on. But that had to be on your mind. And I'm I, I'm sure some will watch and only come away thinking about how ineffectual he was, while others will focus on how thoughtful he was. And I, I wonder how you as a documentarian decide kind of when and where to put your hand on the scale, so to speak. Well, I mean, my feeling uh, about Jimmy Carter in this film is that he's a diplomat and he's a humanitarian. And he wanted to make sure that none of the hostages were killed. And he kept trying and trying to talk to Khomeini about it, but because he would not release the Shah, who I guess had cancer and he was giving him medical benefits and whether that was right or wrong, history will decide. But Khomeini would not negotiate with him, would not talk to him, made him into a villain. People in the streets held signs, you know, with his face on it. But mm-hmm. to me, Jimmy Carter is one of the most extraordinary humanitarians that I've ever met. And also many of the men, after they saw the film, who were in the film, said we thought differently of Jimmy Carter. But after seeing your film, we really understand him and we really respect him. Mm -hmm. So you said history will decide. And it's it makes me think about this endeavor of documentary filmmaking in general, not just talking about this film and and Jimmy Carter and the specifics of of the Shaw in general, when you're making a film, when you're making a documentary, do you as a filmmaker feel like you have to decide? You have to pick a position, pick a side, or is that, yeah? I think that you have to let the film go where it's going to go. Otherwise, you're just making a film that's in your own mind, and then you're not really doing something that's very rich and very complex, and that's what I feel this is because it has a lot of different layers. Mm-hmm. You were talking about some of the interviews and, and one that's one of your favorites, and, and I can absolutely understand why. Was there a moment with any of the principles that you were talking to that it did 
fundamentally shift your your understanding of a situation or shape uh, how you wanted to shape this documentary in a particular story that you wanted to tell? Did it did it surprise you in a way that then altered the the film? Well, I think that this was one of the biggest moments in their life and something that they really couldn't or didn't talk too much about because it was so painful. And so they had been silenced about it for a long time. And I think once they just started talking, material just poured out and they just dug really deep and many of them cried. And, you know, it was a very tender and very open situation. You're sitting there going, why? What, 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 why? What did we do to deserve this? We trained so hard for so long. Everybody who felt like I felt, uh, felt tremendously deflated, saddened, embarrassed, uh, you know, uh, pissed about the helicopters. I have had nobody come back and tell me that that was acceptable to go with that condition. None. Okay? Any hydraulic engineer will tell you the same damn thing. And all I say is BS, have a nice frickin' day. My decision, I was the air component commander, go stuff it somewhere. So, do you mind if I ask you about a particular moment from Harlan County, USA? Of course not. Okay. So, because as I said, it's it's a favorite of mine and I always think about when I when I think about that film, the first image, honestly, that pops into my mind is is a scene where it's a it's a young girl, maybe just about three years old. And and she's she's being bathed in a tub. And there's that line uh, about when daddy gets a new contract, we're going to get a real tub with hot water. And It's just always resonated with me. And I I would just I would just love for you to take me back to to shooting that and, and walk me through kind of the the trust you had to develop in that with that family and that relationship to capture such a a truly intimate moment. That was Darcy Johnson who was bathing her. Um, and the little girl is Angie and, um, her husband was Jerry and there were two other children too. And we just knew them really well. I mean, sometimes we stayed with them when they were, you know, shooting at the houses at night. We would stay with them and put mattresses up and, you know, do everything we could to all be together and to protect each other. That's a family that we got very close to. And I guess Darcy's granddaughter has called me and just brought me up to date about the family and everything else in Harlan County. People still call me Hmm. all the time. You know, whether it's the children or the grandchildren of some of the characters. And so it was something that was very important in my life. And I learned what life and death was all about by by being there. Mm -hmm. So I've done a little bit of reading. I know that those families were a little bit skeptical of you when you came in. I imagine in most documentary situations, the the person or the the people being filmed are a little bit skeptical of what story you're going to tell and what your angle or agenda might be. Over the years, have you developed, I, I hate to use the word technique because it makes it sound too calculated and, and not sort of human and personal, but have you developed any techniques to to uh, to bridge that gap and to develop that trust quickly? No techniques, just to implore on somebody how much they mean to us and how much their story means to us and 
hope that they'll open up and allow us to come in and tell their story. Mm-hmm. So I want to end our conversation with a thing we do here on the show called the Film Spotting Five. Kind of just quick rapid fire questions, mostly about cinema and and your your appreciation of it, your experience with cinema. And the first question used to not be as loaded as it is now because we all could regularly go to the theater and were. But uh, I want to ask you, what is the last movie you remember seeing in a movie theater? Um, well, I, I does a drive-in movie theater count? Sure. Okay. I actually saw Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president, at a drive-in theater at the Berkshire International Film Festival. Um, and it was wonderful. It was the whole other side of him. And you just saw him with the Allman Brothers and with Bob Dylan and even had a tiny little touch of the hostage crisis mm. in it at the end. Okay. So. Well, that's that's one that's on my radar anyway, but now I'm really eager to see it. Oh, you'll love it. It's, you'll love it. It's a really great film. What's a movie you regularly revisit for pleasure or for professional reasons? Oh, boy. <laughs> um, I think that there are just so many of them that I revisit. Um, I think that one of the films that really had an impact on me when I first started was uh, Battle of Algiers, on mm. Carvo's film, and also, of course, the Maisel Brothers films, uh, Salesman and Grey Gardens and Gimme Shelter, and there's just so many, yeah. so many brilliant, wonderful films out there that you could spend the rest of your life just looking at all of them and still not have your fill. For sure. And that's true as well of my next question, which is blind spots, movies that you've still somehow never seen that you've always been a little embarrassed about. Do you have one? I don't. No? I don't. No. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, What about, and I know you touched on a couple influences there already, but the movie that you would point to that made you want to become a filmmaker, specifically become a documentarian? Battle of Algiers. Yeah. I saw it. It was so, I mean, I know it was with actors, but it felt like a documentary and it was so real and so alive. And I saw it at the New York Film Festival and I just thought it was incredible. When I went on tour with Woody Allen to do Wild Man Blues, one of the people that came to visit his was Ponte Carvo. And that was the only person I asked to please have a picture with hmm. and to talk to for a little while. Now I understand where the thriller element comes into play with your films, <laughs> certainly. Uh, right. I know another one that was a huge influence on you was D.A. Pennebaker and Don't Look Back. Do you remember where you were? Do you remember watching that film for the first time and what so captivated you? Well, I knew D.A. Pennebaker so well. And of course, I know Chris. And I think that really what I want to say about D.A. Pennybaker is that when I was in the midst of Harlan County and just felt, oh my gosh, I'm so alone here. I wonder if this film is even any good. And I called D.A. Pennybaker and just said, would it be possible to have a screening, a rough cut screening of it? And would you invite some people to come? And he said, Absolutely. And I went up there and met Charlotte Warren and really talked with Penny Baker and Al Mazels and all these people who were my heroes. Mm-hmm. 
And that was because D.A. Penny Baker, Penny believed in, in me and took a chance and took a risk. And so I hope that I always follow suit with people who ask me for things in life. Yeah. Well, what's it like, though, having your heroes watch your work? I felt sick inside. I was <laughs> petrified. <laughs> I walked all the way. I walked all the way home. They were uptown and I was downtown. And after it was over, I just walked all the way home. And I was so happy, you know, that this experience had happened. Mm. Well, Barbara Koppel, thanks so much for your time. Desert One opens in 85 plus theaters. Yeah, 85 different places. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I hope people get a chance to see it. If they don't see it when it's out in different markets, the on-demand release will follow on September 4th. Again, a real thrill to talk with you. Thanks so much for your time. Likewise. Thank you. My friend said, turn on your TV. Something has happened. The whole nature of the rescue involved risk. I never saw the president so shocked and stunned. Carter said, if we are successful, it will be your achievement. If we are not successful, it will be my defeat. Our thanks to Barbara Koppel for that conversation. Really just a delight to talk to. And as I said, an honor, truly. I did love that when I kind of sheepishly worked in that question about Harlan County. I mean, I know that she recognizes it as her landmark film, the movie that really did put her on the map. But that movie was made, what's the math, Josh, 40 years ago at this point? You don't want to just keep going to that well when she's made so many other really good and interesting films. But when I asked her about that one scene that sticks with me so vividly from Harlan County, she right away mentioned the names of those people that she so clearly remembers herself from shooting it. And it really speaks to that personal relationship that she develops with her subjects. Desert One, as we said, is open now as of this weekend in select cities. It's actually in over a hundred theaters and markets, including New York, L.A., San Francisco, and D.C. And then if you don't get a chance to catch it that way, you can catch it at home on Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, and a whole bunch of other platforms starting September 4th. I do recommend it. Film spotting poll time when we come back. With a new Charlie Kaufman film on the way, we're asking you to pick your favorite performance in a Kaufman-scripted movie. Then, it's an ambitious start to our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. We'll discuss three shorts by Maya Darren, plus Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker. Stay with us.
I introduce the brilliant Nikola Tesla, the greatest inventor of the age. If you Google Nikola Tesla, you get 34 million results. It's basically just four pictures. That's the trailer for Tesla, directed by Michael Amoreda. It opens this weekend in limited release. As you may have gathered from that clip, Tesla is not a traditional biopic. I think David Ehrlich from IndieWire is the blurb on the poster for this movie, and he compares it to, of all things, drunk history. So I'll be curious to hear, Josh, if you thought there was a drunk history element to this non-traditional biopic. Ethan Hawke stars Michael Almereta's former collaborator on Hamlet. He plays the great 19th century inventor. You did see this movie, Josh. I haven't yet. You know I love Ethan Hawke, so I am excited to see this movie. What did you think? Yeah, I can see the drunk history comparisons, although that makes it sound a little more fun than Tesla maybe is. Uh, And I did like Tesla. I would recommend it. I'd put it In a similar category to another biopic I discussed recently on the show, Radioactive, from director Marjane Satrapi about uh, Marie Curie, in that they both do give these flourishes to the conventional genre that bring it to life a little bit more, especially for someone like me who doesn't always love biopics. And I think Tesla does that with touches like, well, let's just say this may count as a spoiler, but I think a lot of people are going to be talking about it. Ethan Hawke's Tesla doing karaoke to Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Now, I'm not going to give you the Mm. context of that. That's probably the most out there element in Tesla, but Almereda does offer things like an on-screen narrator played by Eve Hewson, who pops in every once in a while to fact check the story on Google. Again, these are all uh, touches that make this sound really light and fun, but it otherwise still is a bit dour. And I hate to break this to you, Adam. I don't know. You'd, you'd probably feel differently, but I do attribute a lot of that to Hawk's performance. He is very inscrutable here. He kind of has this low rasp doesn't really even in that karaoke scene that that's he kind of holds back so much in this film that we never really get a sense of what drives this tesla this particular tesla and you could tell that almereda and the movie as a whole wants to sort of position him as apart from the other major men of the time these captains of industry that he got involved with from edison to george westinghouse to jp morgan the movie wants to see tesla more as this visionary but the performance doesn't really give us this sense of uh what that might have been on the inside for Tesla. Still, you know, there's a lot of great visuals here as something with, uh, you know, the experiments that Tesla conducted give uh, Sean Price Williams, the cinematographer, and Almereda a chance to really have fun with that. And they also have this very kind of beautiful technique they use where they project on a screen behind the actors in certain sequences, either archive photography from the time or sometimes landscape scenery. And there's something, yes, playful, but also sort of romantic about that. So the characters seem like they're they're kind of in history and out of history at the same time. And moments like that give the movie a little bit of a soul, I think, that, that otherwise it either wavers between something that's a bit dull with the performance or almost too snarky with the playfulness. That's the sort of touch that where it really came to life for me. So others might find more touches like that um, and appreciate Tesla even more than I did. I think it's worth checking out. My guess is you'd probably like it. 
more than me, Adam, but uh, we'll have to see uh, when you catch up with it. Yeah, all I heard there was you recommending the film, but besmirching Ethan Hawke's performance, and I just don't know that I can abide that. Ethan Hawke, though, (laughs) seriously, the director of his own unconventional biopic, Blaze, a few years ago, he came by our show, actually, for a conversation about that film. So not unfamiliar territory to him, but this one seems like it is even taking it up a notch, so to speak. If you see Tesla and agree or disagree with the Josh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Feedback at filmspotting.net. It is available now in select theaters and digital and cable VOD. We do have some housekeeping, some prizes to give away. Always fun to do here on the show. Last week, we announced a contest around the King of Staten Island, starring SNL's Pete Davidson, of course, Directed by Judd Apatow, it is available right now to own on digital. It comes out on Blu-ray and DVD August 25th. The disc features over two hours of never-before-seen bonus content, including alternate endings, deleted scenes, and a gag reel. Bill Burr stars, Marissa Tomei, really great supporting cast, Bill Powley and Steve Buscemi as well. We have copies of this Blu-ray, Josh, to give away in advance of its release and our listeners love free stuff. We ask them simply to write in and tell us what their favorite Judd Apatow film is. And we got five winners here picked at random, all I think with different choices, which says something, I suppose, about Apatow's filmography that we got such a variety of responses. Why don't you share the winners? Sure. Congratulations to Adam Graff from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Said, my favorite Apatow film is Knocked Up. Thanks for the opportunity. Another winner is Zach Santucci. I think I got to go with a 40-year-old virgin, Zach said. Anna Kane, a winner as well. She went with a pick of Apatow as producer, said my favorite Judd Apatow film is The Big Sick. And then Mo Ada, his favorite Apatow film, Funny People, perhaps tied with 40-Year-Old Virgin. I know it's a bit of an out-there choice, and the movie does drag a bit over the course of its two-and-a-half-hour runtime, but the pain in Sandler's performance hits home. So finally, Jason Knight, our fifth winner, he said, you want a really out-there pick? I'll give you one. There's no doubt that Apatow has made better films, but when talking about favorite, it is the Disney live-action dark comedy Heavyweights. As a young two-sandwiched child in a world made for quarterbacks, this was the movie that I and so many others I knew needed. Heavyweights gave us the confidence we needed to laugh at ourselves, to deal with shame, and to go for it. We, the portly few, got to be something. We got to be the champions. We got to get the girl. We got to go fast. We got to be the heroes. We also got Paul Feig crop tops and dance moves, Apocalypse Now references and jokes about skinny people. Just in case we were doubting Jason Knight's love for heavyweights, he sent a screenshot of his letterbox favorites. You know, you get to pick the four films that are your four favorites of all time. He's got Seven Samurai. He's got Rear Window. He's got Bottle Rocket. And oh, yes, he's got heavyweights. (laughs) That is commitment. So that one written by Apatow, right, I believe? Yeah, we've got Apatow picks there as director, as writer, as producer. The very diverse skill set there of Judd Apatow. Thanks to everyone who entered. And congratulations to our five winners. Just email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Give us your address, and we will get that Blu-ray edition of The King of Staten Island sent off to you. So there are a lot of exciting things going on, Adam, at our Patreon. Uh, That's another way you can support the show by joining the Film Spotting family on Patreon. What we offer there, well, ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early downloads, live pre-sales and discounts, a merch discount, and then monthly bonus episodes. So 
We're trying to determine right now what the August bonus episode is going to be, Adam, and there's a poll on our Patreon page where family members can vote. The theme for this bonus episode is going to be doing 80s madness homework, looking ahead to next year's Film Spotting Madness, best of the 1980s, and we're offering three genre films from that decade. David Cronenberg's The Fly, that's a blind spot for you, Adam. Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop, another blind spot for you. And then one that has come up over and over on the show, because I know you love it, that I have never seen, John Carpenter's They Live. So those were the three choices Mm -hmm. we gave to family members. How's it looking so far in the poll, Adam? Well, first, I do need to provide a disclaimer. Because I'm sure many, many listeners out there gasped when they heard you say, just as our family members did when they saw in writing, that The Fly and RoboCop are blind spots for me. Yes, technically they are, but they are absolutely films as an 80s kid. I saw on TV all the time. Like I had HBO and Cinemax, RoboCop and The Fly were always on. And maybe it's because they were always on and I always watched so many scenes from them. I never did sit down and just take them in. In their entirety, never one sitting. And I definitely was watching them with, you know, 10 year old eyes or whatever it was at the time. So those are movies that deserve some more attention, deserve an adult perspective. I think Josh as crazy and as fun as both of those movies are. And as of right now, I've actually already remedied that blind spot. I did watch RoboCop anticipating that it might end up taking the poll, but it's so close. I love it that we gave three options and it was this hard for our listeners to choose because RoboCop in the lead at the moment, 36%. So probably going to be the choice, but the flies right behind it with 33 and they lives right behind it with 31%. So really we can't go wrong with any of those. And how much longer do family members have to vote on that? Will the poll be open for a little bit? No, by the time... I think by the time they hear this show, by the time it's published, the voting will have probably ended. So hopefully any stragglers are getting their picks in here as we're recording. I'm excited about that. And we're excited about a couple other events that our family members will have exclusive access to. And it's actually next Friday. So Friday, August 28th, we partnered with a longtime listener who we met at our 15th anniversary show in Chicago back in normal times, Josh, when we could gather all in one place and celebrate film. And of course, film spotting Thomas Todd in this pandemic, he's carved out a whole business A former Jeopardy contestant, Thomas Todd. So, you know, our listeners are smart. He has carved out a business devoted to virtual quizzes. And we talked to him. He suggested, why not have Film Spotting do a movie themed event? He's going to handle the quiz master duties. And I'm going to participate. You, Sam, our PA cat, even Michael Phillips is going to participate. So, if you're listening and you're not a family member and you're saying, well, why are you torturing us? Of course, we're trying to entice you to maybe become a family member and have opportunities to participate in special events like this. But also, if this goes well, and this one already sold out, we had 50 spots, the family members sold it out in really about eight hours. If we do more and we expect that we will, then we'll probably branch out, Josh, and make it available to the larger film spotting listening audience, not just family members. I'm really excited, even though I know I'm going to betray just how poor my memory is these days. Oh, man. I know. it's I, I'm totally of two minds of this because the event itself sounds great. And then I also feel like I'm going to be exposed with just how my brain has been turned to mush mm-hmm. in, my, in my mid-40s. So, you know, middle school Josh would have killed at this, but oh, yeah. uh, not not 46-year-old Josh. 
well, even 30-year-old me, I think, would have killed at this. But once the calendar turns past 40, <laughs> it just it all goes away. Gets rough. It just all goes away. Now, we have another event coming up, September 26th our virtual watch party. And if you say, but wait, I've heard other dates. Yes, we initially did think this was going to be the Friday this show is posting, August 21st. That didn't work out for reasons that have to do with our schedules. Then we moved it to September 19th. And that seemed to go okay, other than the fact that me, you, and Sam all overlooked that it was Rosh Hashanah. We do not want to have any conflicts with our listeners who may be recognizing that holiday, and we, of course, want them to be able to participate. So we have switched it. I don't think it's going to change again. September 26th, just a week later, the virtual watch party. We're also going to do it at 4 p.m. Central Time. Hopefully, some of our listeners overseas will be able to make that time difference work, and we can see how many people join us for this virtual watch. Now that I say it, I am a little worried about how many people can actually participate. I don't think we talked about that. I don't know what the Zoom restrictions are on how many people you can have for an event like this. You've had some experience with this, so maybe you can fill me in, Josh. Yeah, I think there are Zoom options, different account levels, perhaps, so we can we can gather a pretty big crowd. And again, this is uh, we're doing this as a thank you for reaching the goal of nine hundred family members on Patreon. We set that as a goal. We do a virtual watch party if we got that number and we hit it a little while back. So very excited to do this. We just got to figure out the technical details. Yes, but also the, mm-hmm. the title. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what movie we're going to do yet. Well, by the time listeners hear this, I think they will have been presented. Our family members will have been presented with the poll question where they get to decide. And as of right now, it's Raiders of the Lost Ark in the film spotting pantheon it's out of sight also in the film spotting pantheon and a cone brothers movie that probably should be in the film spotting pantheon no country for old men those are the three movies listeners get to pick from and get to watch along with us i'm looking forward to it maybe if no country wins we'll cap off the night by inaugurating it into the pantheon i like that idea josh we also have one more patreon development to share which I know is something that a lot of people who are very active on Patreon over the years have lobbied for, and Patreon finally listened, and that's annual memberships. The whole model before was always a monthly membership, so you're always getting charged at the beginning of a new month, and now you can do annual memberships, and that carries with it a benefit. If you wanted to support film spotting and you were willing to lay out the cash for an entire year, you'll also get a 10% discount, which means you'll get over a month free. So something in it for us, something in it for you, as well as a supporter of film spotting over on Patreon. We wanted to share that with you. Patreon.com slash film spotting is where you can sign up and learn more. We always like to keep you up to date on what's happening over at our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. This week, it's part one of their Boys Will Be Boys pairing. So they're looking at the new documentary, Boys State, and pairing it with Peter Brook's 1963 adaptation of Lord of the Flies. I know you just loved Boys State, Adam. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. And Lord of the Flies, I don't know that I've seen. So I have a little homework to do before I can listen to that show. Next Picture Show hosts, of course, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. You get new episodes of The Next Picture Show every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find more info at nextpictureshow.net. We need to recruit some of those next picture show folks to come over to our Patreon and participate in trivia, I think, Josh. Yeah. Oh, they they would be 
solid, much better yeah. than you and I, I think. I know they have done some games that I've listened to as part of their bonus content for their patrons as well. Now, Massacre Theater over on Film Spotting, that's part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. You don't come to bed half the time? You leave, you don't tell me where you're going? Explain that to me. Please, tell me something that helps me understand why you're being like this. There's nothing to explain. A uh, very breathy Adam Kempinar there. That, that's what we like to hear when it comes to yeah. Massacre Theater. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Deadline is Monday, August 24th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. And on next week's show, we'll, of course, not only share the winner, but we will feature some comments from our listeners. There's been a lot of good ones critiquing our collective performances, but especially yours. And I don't want to give away the actor that you were impersonating Mm -hmm. there, but Mike Peterson in Richmond, Virginia said he thought it was amazing you doing your Wilford Brimley impression, (laughs) doing his best Buffalo Bill. (laughs) So I think that's a Silence of the Lambs reference there as well. And then we also heard from John Kruger in Cambridge, Mass, who said he doesn't remember this actor being a stroke victim. But there you go. Mm. Yes, I believe I've gotten that note before. So yeah, that is your go-to. Something, something I need to work on. <laughs> Absolutely. Whether I turn out to be the hero of my own story, or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these moments must show. The opening lines of Charles Dickens' David Copperfield, as spoken there by Dev Patel in the trailer for The Personal History of David Copperfield, which goes into limited release next weekend, is directed by Armando Iannucci, of course, the guy behind the death of Stalin and In the Loop. And we are planning to review it on next week's show. Now, Josh, I know you're going to do your due diligence. You love to do your homework. And... If you didn't already read it as such a great student back in high school or college, I'm guessing you're getting all caught up on the Dickens, right? It is a Dickens that I previously missed. So, yes, Adam, I'm I think I'm five chapters in. Oh, come on. Yeah. And, you know, I'm making fun of you and you actually did it. I should be able to pull this off. I think there's only 783 chapters, so no problem (laughs) at all. Wow. The personal history of David Copperfield was also one of the options we gave you a couple weeks back in the film spotting poll. The question was simply, which film scheduled for August release are you most interested in seeing? The options in addition to David Copperfield were Michael Amoreta's Tesla, She Dies Tomorrow, which we reviewed on last week's show, directed by Amy Simons, Boy State on Apple Plus, and yes, recommended by me. I used to go here, recommended by Josh, not so much by me, starring Gillian Jacobs, Netflix Project Power, or other Josh, how did it come out? Other is in last place with 3%. Then comes Project Power with 4%. And then I used to go here with 7%. Tesla received 13%. Boy State got 16%. And maybe justifying our choice, Adam, to make it the main review last week, She Dies Tomorrow is in second place with 17%. But this bodes well for everyone's interest in next week's show. David Mm -hmm. Copperfield did win with 28%. Amy Rushton has already seen it. David Copperfield was the last film I saw at the cinema. It came out earlier in the UK. If I hadn't already seen it, it would have been my pick. It is a crackling film and one of my favorite kind of literary adaptations where the essence or an element of an original text is focused upon and expanded. Iannucci and co-writer Simon Blackwell don't attempt to cram the whole of Dickens' huge novel. See, you're wasting your time, Josh, into a feature-length running time. What chapter do I need to read? This is going to be great. (laughs) 
<laughs> Instead, they play around with the comic and exaggerated aspects of David Copperfield, allowing a stellar cast to have fun and go big on emotion. Dev Patel is great here, grounding the exaggeration and breakneck narrative in a likable and charming central performance, and it's great to see another off-the-wall comic performance by Tilda Swinton, but the standout of a strong cast is Daisy Mae Cooper. She is a rapidly rising screenwriting and acting talent here in the UK, having won awards and critical acclaim with the brilliant This Country on the BBC, a bittersweet, very funny slice of contemporary life in rural England. And now that Amy has sent that response, that very articulate review of David Copperfield, we actually can skip it. I don't think we need to review it anymore. Thank you, Amy. She's got it covered, huh? We also heard from Zach Ralston. What's not to like about Project Power? Surprised at the low numbers here. Jamie Foxx, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, directors Joost and Schulman of Catfish and Paranormal Activity fame, plus a high-concept script from the writer of the new Batman movie. Throw in Machine Gun Kelly for good measure, and it sounds fun as hell. We did also hear from Frankos, who said, I'm going other tenant in the UK, which I don't know. Uh-huh. Is that a jab at us? Uh, yeah. We probably won't see it. Rubbing it in. <laughs> Zach, I will just ask you, having sent that comment or submitted that comment in the film spotting poll before you saw Project Power on Netflix, do you stand by your choice? Tell us what you thought of it. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Speaking of tenant which will be coming to at least some theaters here in the U.S. as early as August 31st. There's a whole lot to look forward to at the end of this month and in early September. Along with Tenet, we'll get Bill and Ted Face the Music on VOD on the 28th. Mulan comes to Disney Plus on September 3rd. And Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things hits Netflix on September 4th. That movie stars Jesse Buckley, so good, in Wild Rose as a woman who takes a trip to her new boyfriend's secluded farm where she comes to question everything she thought she knew about him. So... It's a Charlie Kaufman script. It's an adaptation of a 2016 novel by Ian Reid. The movie also stars Tony Collette, David Thewlis, and Jesse Plemons. Not a bad cast. So the new poll question, we're asking, what is your favorite performance in a Charlie Kaufman scripted film? Here are the options. John Malkovich in Being John Malkovich. Nicolas Cage as twin brothers Charlie and Donald in Adaptation. Kate Winslet as Clementine in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Or Jim Carrey as Joel in the same movie. And then we're offering Philip Seymour Hoffman's Caden Cotard from Synecdoche, New York. We'll offer you other as an option as well. Do you have an easy pick there, Adam? I don't. And I think Adam Graff here sums it up pretty well. He says, I never thought I'd ever be voting for Nick Cage over Philip Seymour Hoffman in anything, but here we go. It's 2020. I think we can all probably relate to that. I think all of those are really, really good performances. And I really am just stalling here, Josh, because I don't know the answer. I am. I'm skeptical of the Nick Cage vote only because it seems like the easy choice in that we're kind of acting like the Academy and going, well, it's the highest degree of difficulty. He had to play two characters, but maybe it really is the highest degree of difficulty. And I love both performances. So I am inclined to go with the masses here and pick Nicolas Cage, Josh. Yeah, that's tempting. Of course, I'm skeptical that I'm influenced by recency bias because we spent so much time Mm -hmm. in our being John Malkovich revisit not that long ago praising his performance because at least I had forgotten how integral he was to that movie. He wasn't just kind of a gag or a joke, but he gave a real performance in it. But yeah, Cage might be the way to go here. You can vote in that poll. It's not over yet. And leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. I told you my name. What's yours? Mine's Gilbert Bowen. He's Roy Collins. What do you do for a living? I'm a draftsman. He runs a garage. 
That makes you smarter. Or does it? You ought to be all over that windshield. You got lucky. It hit an empty chamber. I had to use it a while back. Now, don't make any more fast moves. I told you the last guy made that mistake. William Tallman with Frank Lovejoy in a clip there from Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker from 1953. Lupino, best known as an actress in films like High Sierra with Humphrey Bogart, was also a pioneering director, one whose work has been a blind spot for us. But we are going to rectify that now, Josh, with the start of our next film spotting marathon. Overlooked auteurs over the next couple of months will be catching up with films from seven women directors working from the 40s all the way through the early 90s. This week, we're going to get to two of those directors. Lupino, who directed seven films overall on some of those she's uncredited, and that was between 1949 and 1966. And we're also going to consider experimental filmmaker Maya Darren, who directed several celebrated shorts in the 40s and 50s. So along with Lupino's The Hitchhiker, we watched three of those Darren shorts, 1943's Meshes of the Afternoon, 1944's At Land, and then Rituals in Transfigured Time from 1946. Now, to help us kick off this new marathon is a longtime listener, Melissa Taminga. Melissa, professor of English, literature, and film at Whatcom Community College in the Seattle area. She's also been a guest host on Film Spotting, and she's a staff writer at the Seattle Screen Scene. Melissa is going to put the careers of these two directors in a little bit of context for us. Hey, guys. In this first episode of your marathon with Maya Darren's films, Meshes of the Afternoon, At Land, and Ritual in Transfigured Time, and Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker, I've been thinking about how to connect these two directors and these films, if it is fair to connect them. On the one hand, Lupino and Darren have little in common. Darren made experimental films, bending cinema's form and its character and narrative conventions, and she worked wholly outside the studio system. She was this film theorist, writer, director, actor, where she funded, promoted, and screened her own work, often on living room walls. Lupino, on the other hand, made more straightforward narrative films, following character, plot, and structure conventions, and she worked from inside the studio system, with RKO Pictures, for example, ultimately distributing The Hitchhiker. But it is notable that Lupino was actually suspended from studio contracts, and when she turned to directing, she formed her own production company called The Filmmakers. And beyond production itself, both women in their unique ways bucked the system and pioneered their own paths. And I think I must say Lupino's The Hitchhiker is perhaps for me ultimately as subversive as the wonderful woman figure in Darren's At Land, this figure who crawls and gropes her way along the long table at a formal dinner party, exposing and disrupting the rituals and expectations of so-called polite society. Take the ways both Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon and Lupino's The Hitchhiker reference and disrupt the conventions of film noir of their day. If noir films, broadly speaking, are these thrillers featuring things like low-key lighting and claustrophobic urban interiors, a kind of a somber mood, a sense of cynicism and inescapable fatalism, an anti-hero, of course, and a femme fatale, both films give us many of these things. But Nilupeno's noir in The Hitchhiker rejects the classic cityscape and creates the same claustrophobic intensity in a wide-open desert landscape instead. 
She also rejects a femme fatale, that figure of a man's demise, and she focuses our attention on the brittle masculinity of her male characters, exposing guns as a fetish, wielded only by those who are weakest and most insecure. And instead of a Sam Spade type figure, furiously asserting his independence, I won't play the sap for you, uh, Lupino suggests it's in vulnerability and camaraderie where true strength lies. And Darren's noir-infused meshes of the afternoon, while offering her character a claustrophobic cycle of fate within the walls of a city home from which, noir-like, death seems the only escape, she even more radically rejects cohesive ideas of anti-hero and femme fatale and makes her central figure a woman, someone whom she makes both anti-hero and femme fatale. And instead of a thriller playing out over a three-act structure, she makes it a thriller wholly confined to one individual's mind, where we see just as many twists and character betrayals as any noir. So my question for both of you as you begin this new marathon and consider Lupino and Darren specifically is, what do you see in these directors' films that Like the connections to noir that we've noted, the films are products of the kind of cinematic conventions that every filmmaker is in debt to, but also showcase evidence of trailblazing in form and in content. Thank you so much, Melissa, for that setup. We hope that we'll get a chance to hear from Melissa another time or two throughout this marathon, but she certainly did an excellent job getting us started. She also, in her extended voicemail, pointed out that Lupino was the only woman director who was included in Andrew Saris's The American Cinema Directors and Directions from 1968, which included his ranking of directors. He kind of put him in different tiers of his pantheon, if you will, and Lupino was there. And of course, Saris, the man who coined the term, at least here in the United States, the auteur theory that our marathon title references, he had her in the back of the book called Oddities, One-Shots, and Newcomers. And Melissa rightfully points out she kind of wishes that Saris had just left Lupino out as his entry on her work basically damns her with faint praise. But Melissa gave us a question there to wrestle with as we consider both of these filmmakers, how rooted in traditional filmmaking and even especially in Lupino's case, rooted in genre their films are, but also how trailblazing, how pioneering their work truly is. What stood out to you in that regard with both of these filmmakers? Well, let me start with Darren. And first off, just to say that I think Meshes of the Afternoon, her first film is a flat-out masterpiece. Uh, It just completely knocked me over in a way that um, reminded me of a film that's in the tradition. I think you could say Darren was working in, and that's Louis Bunuel's Unchen Andalou, which we did as part of our Bunuel Marathon, Adam. So it's a, this is an experimental surrealist film in a lot of ways, Meshes of the Afternoon. But what is distinct about it, to me, is the way Darren takes this dreamlike atmosphere, this this sense of dreaming, the intellectual surrealism at play and made it so intimate. This movie just feels completely distinct from something like Unshin Andalou because it was an emotional experience for me. Whereas mm-hmm. the, the other one, I think you're, it's kind of like a fun puzzle to think about. And it's, you know, you know, Unshan Andalou is disturbing, absolutely, and it it strikes you on that level. But here, as we follow this woman, played by Darren, who walks into a house in the afternoon, goes up some stairs, notices some items, falls asleep in a chair, and then 
the whole sequence kind of repeats and it repeats mm -hmm. a number of times. I just basically felt with each level, even as it got increasingly surreal, it was another level of psychology we were really exploring of this particular person. There are ideas at play here, but there is also a person whose, whose reality and whose very life we can say is at play. So in addition to all of sort of the experimental touches and techniques that we can probably talk about in this, this short film, it's sort of that the way the movie really captures psychological distress mm -hmm. and dislocation for me that makes it stand out and stand alongside, I would say something like Unshan Andalou. Yeah, I agree. And I think maybe the best way for me to try to get at an answer to Melissa's question is to talk about the fascinating intersection of these two directors. We put them together pretty randomly. They're the first films in our series chronologically, and it worked out that we would combine some films here because the three Darren films combined are about 45 minutes and Lupino's The Hitchhiker is only about 70 minutes. So that's a solid two hours there between these filmmakers. But how perfect was it, Josh, watching these films together and thinking about these two filmmakers together? You have in Lupino someone who I think is clearly interested in using cinema to reflect reality. And you know this from watching The Hitchhiker and especially that opening bit of text, right, that tells you that this is based on true events, mm -hmm. that you're going to see facts play out. It uses that word. And even implicating you as a viewer saying, this could be you, yeah. this experience could happen to you, but also how focused she is on putting us as viewers through this experience with these characters. So that sense of reality is omnipresent. And I also know it because I watched a video that was, I think, on the Criterion Channel website. It's a very short video, maybe a minute, but just kind of puts Lupino's career in perspective. Imogen Sarah Smith is the critic who talks about her work, and she says explicitly, Lupino wanted to make documentary-style films about contemporary social problems like rape, unplanned pregnancy, disability, bigamy, and the corresponding clip examples there notably all feature women in these movies and women's stories. That's not the case at all, of course, with The Hitchhiker. No. But you've got Lupino on one end of this realism spectrum, and then you've got Darren on the complete opposite, using cinema not to express reality or reflect reality, but to completely transform it. And I think where they meet in a really interesting way is in Lupino's expressionistic flourishes and in Darren's psychological realism. You said a perfect word there, the intimacy of those three shorts that we watched. That's where these two filmmakers cross over. They seem so disparate and distinct, and they are, but they're also mining some of the same territory. Absolutely. Let me let me jump to The Hitchhiker to kind of further discuss that because the realism at play there for me, yes, it's kind of drawn from actual news stories, mm -hmm. um, this basic uh, scenario. But for me, it was also an emotional realism. And Darren's films, yeah, that realistic is not how you describe them at all unless you think about them psychologically. That's the realism there. And it's similar in The Hitchhiker. And for me, it was the attention that movie gave to trauma. So mm -hmm. you set aside the salacious details of this story, which is basically that this hitchhiker, Emmett Myers, played by William Tallman, gets picked up by a couple of friends, played by Edmund O'Brien and Frank Lovejoy, who are on a fishing trip, basically takes them hostage and forces them to drive him to Mexico. What we get as the movie builds is a real sense of the trauma of this particular 
kidnapping. But also what really took me aback was the trauma that maybe created someone like Emmett Myers, mm-hmm. the hitchhiker. I'm going to point to, you know, a, a performance moment that William Talman gives and that Lupino emphasizes in the final couple of minutes oh, after he's been. You're going to steal it from me. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, it just kind of emphasizes this whole idea of the emotional impact of all of these four films. Yeah. Uh, because when he, when those handcuffs go on him, this tough guy, yep. this rocky face, I want to talk about his face for a bit. <laughs> Suddenly he goes into an absolute panic, right? He starts uncontrollably mm-hmm. shaking when those handcuffs click. And that is, we get a sense of what he talked about in hints earlier in the film, that great speech he gives to his victims about them being soft because he grew up and nobody cared about him. He had to fight for everything. When Mm -hmm. he gives that speech, he's bragging, but he's also lamenting that that is the life he's lived. And that's the trauma he hasn't endured. You're scared to get out on your own. You always said it good, so you're soft. Well, not me. Nobody ever gave me anything. So I don't owe nobody. My folks were tough. When I was born, they took one look at this puss of mine and told me to get lost. I didn't need them. I didn't need any of them. Got what I wanted my own way. So the movie pays attention to the trauma of the victims, too. I think that particularly O'Brien, who plays the mechanic, he has a breakdown scene where he just kind of loses it. You know, what other this is is more a desert noir than a film noir. But what other noir is going to pay this sort of attention to the immediate psychological effects of the genre tropes that we're watching? I think I think that's where the hitchhiker is distinctive. Yeah, I think. In looking at all four of these films, the single image, despite all of the cinematic flourishes and embellishments that you get with Darren, what I'm going to remember most is Maya Darren's face in close up. And similarly Mm -hmm. with The Hitchhiker, and we're going to touch on some of those cinematic embellishments, it's for me, Edmund O'Brien's face and the way that I Lupino constantly goes back to it and reminds us of the trauma, as you said, that he is experiencing. And I think this also ties back to something Melissa said when she talked about how subversive this film is, specifically The Hitchhiker. I think she used the word twice in her voicemail. And there is something in that masculinity. You bring up the moment where he kind of breaks down when those cuffs are placed on his wrists and he's no longer this tough guy. For me, it's also about our identification with him in that moment, which is a very odd feeling to be experiencing. But when those cuffs go on, it's it's almost as if you can understand or empathize with Myers as that person, as that kid who suffered that trauma growing up with that paralyzed eye. And this whole excursion, this run of crime that he is on, this spree is in his mind him just taking the American dream, him realizing the American dream. It's manifest destiny. He's being his own man. He's beholden to no one. And of course, what we see here in this movie is that violent, oppressive side of that pursuit, meaning that in order to fulfill whatever you think you're entitled to, you have to make others submit to your will to become that. And yet in that moment, when those cuffs go on, it's not just the weakness that Tallman is expressing. There's that little bit of me that almost 
feels bad for him that he's going to be locked in a cell mm -hmm. and he's no longer going to get to try to be this man that he thinks he should be or this idealized version of himself. There's also a part of this, too, I wanted to bring up. And I did a very quick Google search to see if I was completely on the wrong path. And it seems that there's some writing out there on this subject that I wasn't able to dive into. But I think there's there's a reading of Myers and Tallman's performance where you have to recognize or wrestle with that what he's really hiding, the thing that really makes him a misfit in this society at this time might be his sexuality. Right. And the way he's overcompensating with the gun and overcompensating with his expressions of power. And I also think, Josh, you have to consider what Lupino might be really slyly doing with the relationship between Collins and Bowen. Melissa's right that there's just something inherently subversive, I think, in their vulnerability and in their strength being their friendship and their camaraderie. And they ultimately they prevail not the way we would expect male heroes in a crime movie to prevail, which is through power and through not being oppressed and not being dominated. But at no point we get an expression by Collins that he can't take it anymore, but his friend talks him down mm -hmm. and they don't ever actually try to overpower him. They do eventually win because they're just measured and reasonable and actually compliant. That's there. But there is something in, again, Collins face and the way Lupino emphasizes it, that anguish and the emasculation. And then I would also say you have to look at this trip, this journey that they're on together. You've got one friend who has a family, wife and kids at home, at least one kid. You have the other where it's never explicitly mentioned, but we have no reason to believe he necessarily has a family back waiting for him. And they're on this trip to, well, kind of nowhere, right, Josh? Like they say they're going fishing. And when they go to Mexico, it's telling when they're confronted by the men on the street who are trying to sell them on coming into the club, they're selling them on the women in the club and the right. good time they can have. And Lupino shows us, and we see it in the performance, Bowen is pretending in that moment to be asleep. Yeah. And by pretending to be asleep, he knows that they won't go into that club. And it's only then when Colin starts to drive off, he says, well, San Felipe, here we come. There, There is a suggestion, I think there's an implication that all these two masculine men want to do together is really just spend time with each other, which there's a hint of homoeroticism there for sure that I also think Lupino is probably consciously playing with. I can see that reading, though there isn't there a little clue dropped, and I meant to go back and watch the scene again, but didn't get a chance to do it before we started recording. Uh, don't they say very early on, they make a choice about not going to their fishing spot because right. they're going to Mexicali and they reference an earlier time they did that yes. in a particular woman who woman. they met. So my my reading of that was that it was kind of morally implicating them with Myers, not on the same level, hmm. but in that they made a different moral choice by going to Mexicali. And then that is why Bowen pretended to be asleep uh, is he didn't want to stop there 
because he is the married guy now. And the, he had sort of agreed to do it. And then he pretends to be asleep so that they can't do it. So it's yeah. a way for him to, again, maybe it plays into what you're talking about, to maintain exactly. the masculinity sure. for Collins. Like, yeah, let's go do that again. Exactly. But then get out of it later. So, But it does come up because Myers even calls them on it, right? He says later mm-hmm. on, where were you boys going? You That's said right. you were going fishing. That's it. Your wives don't know. He calls him out on that. Exactly. Yeah, there's a couple of ways to read that. There's even a moment, Josh, where it occurs to me that remember how Myers very early on, he's giving them instructions about how to behave in the car. And he tells them that they have to sit a certain way. And he says to Bowen in the passenger seat, I want you to sit with your arm up on the seat. And there is a practical reason for that. We understand that he wants to see his hand. So he wants his left hand to be visible. We don't want him reaching for anything. That's from Meyer's point of view. But in doing that, He's sitting like the quote unquote girlfriend or the boyfriend in a car who has their arm out that's almost touching the person driving. And I I, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's there. Well, yeah. And you and you want to be careful, too. You don't want to, which some films of earlier eras did, is equate the sexuality with the, you know, the moral failings of the characters of Myers. Which I don't see any moral failing. Well, I'm not talking about Myers. I'm talking about the two men in front. Yeah. yeah who I see no moral failings in. Yeah, there's a possible reading that way for sure. I, I Just to go back to, to Talman as Myers, and you mentioned the eye and just the face this guy has, and you mm-hmm. might recognize it. He would later go on to play um, the DA on Perry Mason on TV for like 10 years. So he might look familiar, but here it's just this, you know, like a piece of rock, it, it, his face, but he's got this big nose. He has the one bright eye uh, and then that drooping one that is Perry paralyzed and it, it's it never fully closes he says at one point you'll never know if i'm sleeping or if i'm watching you mm-hmm. which is just very creepy and it's also it how talman uses this face right yeah he he'll smile every once in a while so he kind of cracks open that granite wall but then he quickly snaps it shut after he's made a brutal threat so it's kind of like he's only smiling so he can give it that exclamation point i, I really think you know this this is a great performance and lupino takes advantage of that very early on when Myers is sitting in the back seat, the camera is basically looking at all three of them from the front windshield. And then it pushes forward towards the back seat, just as Myers leans into this pool of light that's been mm-hmm. created. And we get that full face come at us. And and I call it a desert noir, not so much because of the plot or, or the themes really, but mostly the lighting because working with the cinematographer, Nicholas, Musaraka, Lupino finds so many ways to give us noir lighting, even though we're out in the desert, even if it's in the daytime. Think about the scene where they stop under the bridge along the creek and we get shadows and slanted light there, Uh, the gloomy uh, car interiors, and then where that climactic scene takes place, that pier. It's at night and you've got those lamps overhead that are just hovering like UFOs, you know? So it's really a, a visually gorgeous film in the noir tradition, even though I think Lupino is interested in other things than what traditional noirs sometimes are. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there is this whole subgenre of noir, which is the Western noir. This mm-hmm. certainly fits into that scheme. But Musaraka, you mentioned the DP, also shot one of my favorite film noirs ever out of the past. And that's where those expressionistic noir type touches I was referring to come into play. Think about the opening of this film, which really has nothing to do with capturing 
realism, if that truly was what Lupino cared about the most, we get that very deliberate framing. The killer, Myers, only from the waist down. The car door blocking mm-hmm. our view of him when he opens it. You only see his feet and his legs. The the purse falling that suggests something is wrong. We hear the gunshot and we see the purse fall. We understand what he has just done just from that visual. And this is all dialogue free, right? Before yeah. we meet Collins and Bowen, there's no dialogue that sets any of this up. It's all through just the camera and movement and watching Myers before we even know who he is, before the newspaper article reveals him on screen. And that dissolve we get from the shot of the ground, Myers leaving, and then sometime later, a police officer coming across the car, his flashlight coming into view in the darkness. And there again, we just see the foot. We see the dress. We see the light go up to her hand. So there's a lot of veiling here that really creates a certain mood. And as I said, doesn't really reflect any type of documentary style filmmaking whatsoever. And then you go to you go to Darren and where I said they kind of cross in terms of their filmmaking approaches. It is that psychology and as surreal as the imagery is. What I think Darren really captures in all the films, in that repetition, in the physical movement, in the disappearance and the appearance of objects, all against, and I'm thinking here of meshes specifically, but all against the backdrop of Hollywood, right? When when she goes outside, it's sunny and there's palm trees. There is this overwhelming palpable sense. I had the same word in my notes, Josh, of dislocation, mm-hmm. of fear, of a lack of control. And you really see that lack of control in that sequence with the body twirling totally chaotically oh, uh, on the staircase, right? It really is. But that sense of a character not having any agency. And I think when you consider it that way, too, it ties back to The Hitchhiker because that's also what we get in Collins and Bowen is two men who do not have agency. Myers is determining their entire lives and all of their movements and everything they're doing. And as long as they're under his control, they're not in control of themselves. But again, there's some sense of reality in Lupino's version of that. But in Darren's, it's it's all a dream, but it's still reflecting real fears. It seems to be reflecting real alienation, right? So without that, it's just an experiment, but it has it. It's so imbued into every frame that we we do feel that personal sense of dislocation. How Darren managed that staircase sequence in Meshes, which is basically like a mimicking a loss of gravity, and it's as accomplished as the hotel hallway sequence in Inception. I mean, it's it's that effective and that jarring. And this is done, you know, decades earlier in an experimental short. Dislocation, we we should probably give a little time to the other two films we watched, is also, you know, one of one of the themes in At Land. The short that's from 1944. Here, you know, it begins with Darren again, a woman who looks like she washes up on a beach. And to me, she spends the rest of the movie trying to get back to nature. But we have that image of the waves in reverse motion. So they're rolling away from her, sort of like trying to flee from her. And she spends the rest of the film really entering one space and then inexplicably appearing in another. So climbing this wall of driftwood Mm -hmm. and finds herself on top of a dinner party table, which she crawls across. And so there's more dislocation going here. There's more displacement. And the thing that was distinct to me was really Darren's performance, because here's where I think it starts to be 
become more something like experimental dance. You get a bit of that in meshes, mm-hmm. especially in the staircase sequence. Rituals here, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And rituals is even more so. But here, you know, she's it's almost like she's trying to meld her body with these natural formations. She'd rather be part of nature than these societal events that she finds herself in, but she can't, she can't stay in nature. You know, she's, mm-hmm. she's trapped in the human experience is kind of what, what I got a sense of in at land. Yeah, for sure. And I did find it striking that watching them in the order that I did meshes is set in Hollywood. It says that the next one is in New York. So these are different spaces where you can feel a similar sense of alienation and dislocation. And then the third one rituals doesn't tie itself that I recall to a specific location other than for the most part, this house, there is this, this everyday sense to it, this domesticity almost with the, the female characters we see on screen playing with the yarn and going through some of these different rituals, some of these different customs, but again, heightening it, making it something surreal and absurd by turning it all into a dance. And I'm with you completely that in at land in particular, When she's lying on that beach, she's the one motionless, while not only are the waves going backwards, making the whole thing more eerie and odd, but they're in motion. The bird in the sky is in motion. Things, people, objects are always in motion in Darren's films, or they're being contrasted with something that is not in motion. And later, we get that reversed. She's the one. Not that everyone around her is completely static, but at that dinner party scene, they're Mm -hmm. oblivious to her. They're going about their routines. No one is moving within their space other than talking. And here she is. She's the one in motion, writhing and crawling on that table. And yet she isn't able to kind of break them out of their slumber or whatever, whatever reverie that they're in as hard as she's trying. Yeah. A lot of what Darren is doing is, is manipulating bodies in both space and time. And she's doing Mm -hmm. that as a performer. And then at the same time as a filmmaker and of the three we saw, I think this really comes to the fore in ritual and transfigured time, which you could really consider almost an experimental dance piece. It, It kind of becomes that when, Again, kind of taking off from the social dislocation in Atland, this features a different woman, Rita Cristiani, plays her who's at a cocktail party, a crowded cocktail party that becomes this strange dance. The greetings everyone is giving to each other suddenly takes the form more of a dance. And then it expands Mm -hmm. to this lavish garden estate where Cristiani does a routine essentially with one of a man from the party played by Frank Westbrook, a, a dancer. And there is probably the most disorienting manipulation of, of a body in space and time comes with Westbrook and Cristiani Adam. I, I don't know if I didn't do any research into how she did this or what the effect was, but essentially there's a moment where Darren seems to shift camera speed mid shot. Mm-hmm. So we see Christiani running from Westbrook at a normal pace, you know, as you would run, as you would just be filmed. The camera pans over to him pursuing her, but he's in slow motion and he's mm-hmm. doing these graceful leaps. And it's just so jarring to have this yeah. sense. We're used to seeing a scene in, in slow motion. We're used to seeing a scene in regular time. But to see an uncut moment that kind of melds the two was was sort of one of those, you know, eye-bugging experiences mm-hmm. of the three films for me. Yeah. You mentioned Nolan. And I do feel like, in a lot of ways, our Nolan overview set us up for these Darren films because you yeah. not only get a director here very clearly playing with time, very clearly playing with our sense of reality, giving us doppelgangers, giving us, especially in Meshes of the Afternoon, objects 
right? Between the key and these different things, these different images that we keep coming back to. But also, I was thinking about our review last week of She Dies Tomorrow and that sense of fatalism and how I feel like you could have taken some of those shots from rituals in particular of Darren walking through the house, but also in the house in meshes. And you could put those side by side or overlay them over Caitlin Shiel walking through her new house mm. after she's had this break from reality. And they feel so similar, including the use of point of view, in fact, to sometimes align us with her and then give us a completely different sense of the room that, again, makes it a little bit more jarring. But also, did you think about the influence that Darren may have had on Ingmar Bergman as we watch in rituals, two characters on a beach playing chess with each other. And throughout the course of that entire film too, the, the kind of split personality sense she captures by dividing up the room the way she does by giving us parallel and perpendicular bodies with each other. And I'll even combine them here and go with the beach scene and the chess scene from Rituals with the Grim Reaper figure from Meshes of the Afternoon. You wonder if somehow this invaded Bergman's psyche as he made a movie like The Seventh Seal. And I will point out, too, to kind of round out my thesis here about reality and fantasy clashing together in that Grim Reaper figure, we get that very eerie mirror type face, right, where we don't actually see mm -hmm. a face. Yeah, and Meshes. And what does what does a mirror do but reflect reality? Except, of course, in a Maya Darren film, it doesn't. It it's blank. It it reflects essentially, I suppose, whatever you want to see in it. Yeah. Or if she were to look into it, right, then she sees herself. So, and it's it's in a way, it's another doppelganger. Yeah, definitely, Nolan. You can look ahead and see the influence there. You can look to Bergman, and you can even see in her own time, you know, something like Kenneth Anger's Fireworks, which is uh, I want to say uh, forty-seven. So, you know, a little bit after what Darren is doing, but another experimental short about 15 minutes that is combining dance and movement and I would say alongside both what Lupino is doing and Darren is doing something very intimate and, mm -hmm. and emotional and really rooted in psychology in the sense that it is this uh, very, very early work of gay cinema. So, and I think fireworks reminded me very much of the work that David Lynch would do. And obviously now that I've seen some Darren films mm -hmm. as well, it's Lynch is one of the most original directors, filmmakers we have yet at the same time, it's hard to imagine his work without something like fireworks or any of these Darren films. Absolutely. Three other Lupino films, for what it's worth, are available on CriterionChannel.com, The Bigamist, Lust for Gold, and Never Fear. So if you did play along or are going to play along and you appreciated The Hitchhiker and you are a Criterion Channel subscriber, you can see all three of those movies there. The Darren Shorts are all available on YouTube. They're linked to on our marathons page over at filmspotting.net. Also, I want to say I noticed today that The Hitchhiker is on YouTube for free as well. It's also on Amazon Prime for free if you're a subscriber. And a lot of these films on the marathon are available through Canopy. So if you want the complete list of ways, or maybe not the complete list, but a pretty complete list of ways that you can access all the films in the marathon. They're on a variety of different platforms. Again, filmspotting.net slash marathons. Next week on the show, we'll get to our next overlooked auteur, Czech new wave pioneer Vera Chitlova and her film from 1966, Daisies. Josh, that's our show. 
Indeed, it is fun to be in the midst of another marathon. If you want to check out some of our previous marathons, you can find those in the show archives at filmspotting.net. We've also got reviews, interviews, and top fives going all the way back to 2005. If you want to connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at the Filmspotting website, you can vote in the current Filmspotting poll. We're asking you, what is your favorite performance in a Charlie Kaufman scripted film? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, go to filmspotting.net slash newsletter. The subject of our first segment here, Barbara Koppel's Desert One out in theaters and coming soon to VOD, recommended by me. And on digital, the one and only Ivan hits Disney+. Plus. We have not seen that, but Josh has also seen Tesla available on demand and in select cities. And we did get a recommendation, even if he didn't have quite enough love for my guy, Ethan Hawke. We'll see how I feel about it. Is is there such a thing, Adam, as enough love for Ethan Hawke? No, no. Good point, Josh. Next week on the show, we'll review, or at least we plan to review, the new movie from Armando Iannucci, The Personal History of David Copperfield. Josh only has 700 chapters left in the book. And our <laughs> Overlooked Auteurs Marathon does roll on, as we said, with daisies hopefully we'll get some more people to participate josh and check out those titles film spotting is produced by golden joe Dassault and sam van hogren without sam and golden joe this show wouldn't go our production assistant is kat sullivan thanks also to candace griffiths and the listeners of the film spotting advisory board and special thanks to everyone at wbez chicago more information is available at wbez.org our music this week is by land of talk comes from the album indistinct conversations more information is at landoftalkmusic.com for film spotting i'm josh larson and i'm adam kempinar thanks for listening This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.